Luke 12:16 through 21. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So I want you to turn in your Bibles or on your device to the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you have a hard copy of the Bible, if you kind of open it right to the middle, you'll probably hit Psalms or Proverbs. And then if you flip it one more book over, you've got Ecclesiastes. And by the way, if you don't have a hard copy of Scripture and you'd like one, there are some in the back table there, and uh, you're welcome to keep that with our compliments. And uh, it definitely will help you to have a copy of the text in front of you, so I trust you will uh, open that up. So I want to take just a second and uh, talk to you about what we're going to be doing over the next uh, few weeks. So the task that I've got before me is twofold. Uh, We're going to have a shorter message, and then I'm going to spend a little bit of time just telling you where we're going um, in Ecclesiastes. So in January and February, and then the first week of March, uh, we're going to be hearing eight messages on Ecclesiastes that I will be bringing. Uh, In 2024, you're going to see a lot more. We're going to have a preacher who's going to stay with a series and see it through to the end. Now, we're not going to complete Ecclesiastes in in eight weeks. It'll be about 15. But on the third week of January, uh, Drew uh, is going to be preaching to us on the day that we uh, vote to call him. And uh, then we're going to take, I'm going to take a break and then pick up a little bit later on. And so I guess for the next year, I'm going to be kind of the, uh, the Ecclesiastes guy, and, uh, and I'm okay with that. So I do understand a Sunday Bible study class has been moving through this, and, uh, and which made me pause for just a second, like, is that too much Ecclesiastes? And, and after spending some time in it, I'm just convinced you can't have too much Ecclesiastes. So um, why Ecclesiastes? Well, this is a wisdom book. And here we are at the beginning of 2024, and who does not need some wisdom? I mean, what a great way to start the year. The series is entitled, A Handful of Clouds. Now, this phrase is going to capture the famous phrase, vanity of vanities, which we'll look at uh, in depth. And, uh, but a handful of clouds, I, I, I got this expression um, I was doing a little bit of uh, internet research to see, like, you know, what, what do people call different series? This didn't come up as a series title. What did come up was this, this quote by a great philosopher, Mike Tyson. <laughs> now, please don't tell Mike that I'm poking fun at him, all right? Mike says, I'm a dreamer. I have to dream and reach for the stars, and if I miss a star, then I grab a handful of clouds, now, I think I know what Mike was trying to say. I think this was a riff on that old, you know, shoot for the moon, because even if you miss it, you know, you may hit a star. Uh, but what he came out saying is, is probably truer than he knows. He says something very ironic, because grabbing a handful of clouds is an exercise in futility. You have nothing. And this is a recurring theme 
as we will see. But I don't want you to miss the subtitle of this, A Search for a Meaningful Life. So by the end, I want us to be better equipped to live a meaningful life. So throughout this, we are going to be looking both at the handful of clouds aspect of life, the brief vanity of it, but also realize that we are after something, a meaningful life. Now, I've profited from the sermons by a pastor friend. He spoke here once. His name was Chris Bronze, and he preached a message on Ecclesiastes called, um, he called it a, search for, or a uh, journey for joy. And he noted these things. If you want to have a journey for joy and you want to study Ecclesiastes with profit, he said there are five things you need to do. And I just thought they were so helpful that we talk about them for just a second. So first of all, you have to long for joy. Well, I don't know about you, but sometimes you just feel as you're living life and just like the repetitiveness of it, or maybe there's something that you do and it's just really unpleasant and you just ask yourself the question, like, does this count? Is what I'm doing, is what I'm spending all my time doing, does it even matter? How do I live life? How do you live life with, with receiving it as a gift from God but keeping the right perspective? Well, you've got to long for it. So if you're asking those sort of questions, then you're in a good place. But you also have to realize that God's word can get you there because the law of the Lord is perfect and it, it can complete your soul. And so you have to long for it. You've got to want it. If that is in your heart today, you're in a good place. Number two, you need to wrestle with it. That's just the nature of wisdom. This is wisdom literature. Now, wisdom literature isn't like strolling along the seashore and picking up a shell here and shell there. It's more like getting the shovel and digging and, and trying to find something, and then you'll find a gem and you'll wash it off. And, and sometimes it's just not readily apparent. That is the nature of wisdom. It is compact, so you have to unpack it. And so we're going to do some wrestling Ecclesiastes is, is fascinating because people have abused it in all kinds of ways. They'll grab just like a single verse and, and well, take for instance Ecclesiastes 3.19. Listen to this one. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts for all is vanity. Well, it sounds like from this that you could prove that man has no soul, that there's no difference between animals and men and that there's no afterlife. This is the kind of thing that we are going to have to wrestle with, but it is well worth it. Also, you have to have a good bit of courage uh, to wrestle with it. So this is not going to be real, real pleasant sometimes because the preacher here, the philosopher, he is going to float all kinds of, of arguments for what life is like, and then he's going to, to pop them. Sometimes it's not fun. He says really, really hard things, and so you have to have the courage to come wrestle with it. And I hope we are going to do so. You have to have some patience. Now, the preacher has a fascinating mind. And we're going to get to know this, this ancient writer and follow. But it's not always A plus B, therefore C. It's not always linear. Sometimes it starts with a theme and then it goes off on this and then it restates the theme. And so if you're really, really wanting like super, super tight outlines and linear thinking, you may... Uh, you may not like it. Um, you got to have patience uh, when you do this. Uh, 21 years ago, I had a professor who, who taught on this, and it just captured my attention. And he wrote an article about seven reasons that Ecclesiastes teaches you to enjoy life. And those things have become foundational in some of my thinking. 
And, but it's taken 21 years for me to just kind of like really, really wrestle through it. And I hope it doesn't take us 21 years. I, I hope it'll take us about 15 messages. And at the end of this, we'll be like, wow, we have been on this, this journey together. And, uh, and finally, you need to know that the goal is to identify a way of life that just makes sense of life. Enjoying life as a gift from God and then smiling wryly at all the other attempts. You know, I, I want you to think for a second, like what is like the best time in your life? Okay, maybe a, a graduation or a degree or maybe it was holding a new baby uh, or a grandbaby. The best time in life. But then on the other hand, I want you to think about the worst time in life the time that you were at the very, very lowest that you could possibly be. Maybe you're still there. Whatever the meaning of life is, it has to answer the question for both of those, both the best and the worst. It has to make sense of that. So on to the second part of the task, the tests itself. Verses 1 through 11 provide, provide us with an introduction that's going to set the tone for the whole book. And so we're going to read it in just a moment in its entirety. But again, if you're a note taker and you're just like really, really linear in your thinking, um, I'm going to put the outline up right here, and this is the only time you're going to see it, okay? So so get it down. Um, We're just going to talk about the theme, and then he's going to give some observations, and then he's going to restate the theme, give a few more arguments to prove it, and then he'll be done. So with that in mind, let's read verses 1 through 11. I invite you to turn your attention to your text. It will not be on the screen. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down. It hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south, goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It's already, it has been already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. You say, this is how we're going to find meaning and joy. Ah, yes. Today, the message is called, No Gain for All Our Toil. You know, I... Recall, as a college student, I traveled to represent my alma mater, and uh, I stayed with various individuals. And I recall very vividly one gentleman, obviously generous because he invited some, you know, college guy they didn't know into his home. And uh, but he spent the first fifty minutes, forty-five or fifty minutes, showing me around his house, which there's nothing wrong with that. But what I remember very distinctly was he would show me his entertainment system and how he had installed the sound system and said how much it cost, how much that table cost, how much this light fixture cost, what he had to do to to put in this water feature that he had. And then after the tour concluded, he said, I think I've done pretty well for myself. Yeah, I've never forgotten that experience. I've never forgotten those words. In fact, now I just think how sad 
you know, how sad that this brother in Christ found his worth in the things that he possessed. Now, it's easy to judge people for valuing something that you don't value, but, you know, you have your own thing, something that you value. Some of you know that I'm a, I'm a coffee guy, and I've uh, worked in the industry for a while, and uh, sometimes people approach me and say, hey, I'm thinking about getting into espresso, like, you know, way of brewing coffee. Uh, what do you think? And I say, listen, unless you want a hobby and got 2,000 bucks, don't even try it. And, you know, I fell into that hole once, trying to figure out how to, like, I was even selling things so I could try to, like, buy the next tier and, until I kind of came to my senses. Now, your thing may not be coffee, but you know what I mean. It's just a mentality that we have. Bigger is better. Newer is better. So I imagine you can relate in some area. Well, Ecclesiastes is going to hit that head on. It's going to hit it in these verses. So the author of Ecclesiastes, now my translation calls him the preacher, but you could also call him the teacher, the professor, or even some just transliterate it and call him Koheleth. Some call him the quester, and I like that a lot. It seems to be that he is writing in a time when Israel has moved out of its agricultural roots and now it is kind of on the center of a trade route that connects Egypt to to Asia and Europe. And so it was a time where there was a lot of money flowing and fortunes were being made and fortunes were being lost. There's also an indication that he was writing to younger men. He was an older man writing to younger men, probably noble young men, because he writes a lot about the court And he's very, very concerned about how they conduct themselves before the king. And then in verse 3, he gives his audience a warning. Look at it. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? The expected answer is they will not gain anything from all their toil. So let's follow the quester as he explores this idea. In verse 2, we get his overall theme, and this is the whole theme of the book. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Vanity literally can be translated vapor or breath. If you go outside on a cold day and you blow out, that's what you have. All things in the world are like that. It is here a moment, it is visible, and then it is gone. James, the brother of Jesus, uses that image in James 4, What is your life? Okay, now he says, your life, for you are a mist, a vapor, that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You know, if you ask somebody who's been around the block a few times, maybe in the latter part of their years, an old person, if you ask them, has it gone fast? Most of the time they will say, it has gone so fast. But there's more to this image of of vapor than just how briefly it happens. It is, it's also insubstantial. And that's why Mike's quote is so ironic. If I miss a star, I grab a handful of clouds. It it not only just disappears quickly, it's insubstantial. You can't grab it. Vanity of vanities. That repetition is on purpose. Vanity of vanities. It's like the holy of holies. The holy of holies is Israel's most holy place, a place that is utterly holy. And so he's saying it is utterly vain. It is absurd. And then he repeats it again so we don't miss it. All is vanity. A number of years ago, we, we bought the newest vehicle that we've ever owned. It was a, a 
almost new van, just a couple years old, and it was it was pristine. And I was just glorying in in the smell of it and the 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 lack of scratches and the lack. I was just enjoying this new vehicle, and that lasted about twelve hours. As we pulled it into the garage, we scraped the side and ripped off the mirror. I hurt so bad. It reminded me that everything I possess, it has one goal, to get to the junkyard. And my goal is to keep it out of there. And if my joy is banked on that item, my joy will be brief and unsubstantial for sure. The word itself Vanity is a key to kind of understanding the whole theme. It's, a, it's one of those words that's kind of a shapeshifter. You've got to make sure that you know the context. There's no word that captures it. People have tried a number of different things, uh, but it all speaks of brevity and elusiveness. Sometimes it means absurd. Later it's paired with a phrase, chasing the wind. In other words, you can go after it, you can try, but it is impossible. Sometimes it speaks of something that is unsearchable or an effort that is futile. So that is his theme, vanity of vanities. Everything is futile, quick, brief. So having stated his theme, the preacher makes another observation about the vanity of life. His first observation is in verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So to prove his point, the teacher is going to look at life from a bunch of different angles. In this passage, he's asking this question, what do people gain from their toil? The expected answer is nothing. The word there, gain, it just means profit. Profit. What do you have left over? At the end, what will you have left over from everything that you toil? My dad would sometimes say, you don't see a a hearse pulling a U-Haul. There's nothing left over. Notice the phrase, under the sun. That happens almost 30 times in this book, and it is so important. If you don't get anything, okay, get this. That as you're reading Ecclesiastes, this is going to unlock it for you, it is the observation about life limited to under the sun. In other words, it is a life that we try to make sense of apart from God, without any sort of revelation coming in. You could call this a secular worldview. You could call this a materialist worldview. Uh, the, this is what he is speaking of. So if you're trying to do it under the sun, it, is, it will be brief, it will be brief, it will be futile. Sometimes it will be even absurd. Jesus himself raised a similar observation in Matthew 16. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Think about that. What profit, there's the word, what gain do you have if you lose your own soul? The answer Jesus expected was nothing. What can you give in return for your soul? The answer, again, is nothing. You can't give anything to buy back your soul. And so he's going to prove his thesis with some analogies looking at nature in verses 4 through 7. Look at verse 4. A generation goes, okay, marches off the stage, and a generation comes, marches onto the stage, but the earth remains forever. One succeeds another. What is gained? Nothing. It just happens. One marches off, one marches on. It's very similar to later on. He talks about the sea where the rivers are trying to fill up the sea, but it just keeps flowing. Now, why? Why is this happening? Why is one generation going and another generation coming? Well, because of vanity, because of the brevity of life. 
And what does the earth gain at the end, after all these generations pass through? Nothing. It just keeps filling and emptying in one long procession. Verse 5, the sun rises, sun goes down, and then it hastens to the place where it rises. Hastens is a very interesting word. It, it, it means pants. It pants. And what this brings to mind, if, if you are an athlete and you just recall those practices, if you're a basketball player, what you hated here was ladders. Give me five ladders. And you're like, oh. And they said, go get a drink. You come back. Okay, what's next, coach? Give me five more. And you haul yourself to that line and you do it again. Well, it says the sun is like that. Elsewhere, the sun is said to be a strong man running his race with joy, but not here. Now the sun is that track person who just ran it, and the coach says, do it again. He drags himself back to the line and does it again. It's as if the sun is chasing its tail. I'm sure the author is very grateful for the sun, but this is just an illustration. The sun has nothing to show for it. From the earth and the sun, he turns to the wind in verse 6. The wind blows to the south and to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuit, it returns. Now, the wind, at least, has got some freedom. It can go where it wants, right? It can go north. It can go south. There's no, but wait a second. It's on a circuit, and then it returns. Then he goes to the sea. All the streams run to the sea. Now, there's lots of canals and stuff around here. I enjoy looking at them. They all seem to be trying to fill the sea. This is not a statement about the, you know, the cycle of, uh, what's it called, evaporation. We know that's why the sea is never full. But the point is the seas are working so hard, but they have no gain, no return on their investment. You know, so having observed this, he concludes in verse 8, all things are full of weariness. And he's talking about the nature there. Uh, they all are doing their thing. He says even our senses are in a cycle. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. And I mean, in other words, you can go out there and you can, you can have an endless cycle of seeing, an endless cycle of speaking, an endless cycle of, of hearing these things. But uh, it, it doesn't give you any gain. So even our senses illustrate this. And so now he's going to kind of approach this from a different angle in verse 9. He's still talking about nature there. What has been is what will be. But then he brings in this new focus. And what has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. And so we got this new lens of history. What's been done will be done. And so here we are, just like nature, we too are just full of frenetic activity. You know, you've heard the saying that, that if you don't learn history, you're going to be doomed to repeat it. I mean, thankfully, we've, we've learned some lessons. But you think that you've learned some lessons of, like, say, the Holocaust. But then all of a sudden, you start to see anti-Semitism crop right back up again. And you say, like, here it is again. We never learn. And then he closes the parenthesis and mentions under the sun again. You know, in verse 10 it's almost as if there's a student, one of those young men who, who pops up and says, but, but wait a second, here, see, this is new. He flatly states, it has already been in the ages which are before us. We could say, now we're not talking about the, you know, the newest iteration of the iPhone. Obviously, that comes, but it's talking about the, the common experiences that we have. We say, hey, here is a, a new baby. Now, babies have been born before. Here's something new in the news cycle. Wars have been fought before. Verse 11, he gives another anticipated objection. 
He says, say this young man pipes up and says, well, listen, at least as long as we are here, at least maybe I can make my mark, you know, I, as long as I'm remembered by history. And uh, his response to that is, there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance, and those who come later will forget. You know, as you're driving along sometimes, you'll see a little green sign on a little bridge, and you'll see a name by it, and you're like, who was that person? Even in a major, even in a major thing, how many of you have seen this bridge? Anybody know its name? First service, a number of people did. Okay, the, the Roth Bridge. How much do you know about Roth? I know some of you probably met him, but he was a U.S. representative and a senator, and, uh, and he's the one who actually um, proposed the Roth IRA. But you know what? I'm, I've lived in Delaware for you know, 10 years now. I'm 46 years old, and I did not know that this was the Roth Bridge. And even once I do know it, I'll probably forget it. And then someday when they tear that bridge down, will they put his name on it again? Or consider this. Now, most of you, like me, have never seen such a thing. $10,000 bill. Um, do you know this man? Boy, if you do, come up afterwards. I'll give you a candy bar. Um, this is Salmon P. Chase. Okay, he was a 19th century chief justice, and he gave us the ideas for banknotes. Um, and so here he is on the $10,000 bill. But, you know, it's pretty amazing. I mean, that's quite the accomplishment. I'll never do anything like that. But here he is. He made this, this contribution to history, and most of us don't even know who he is. You know, I actually started thinking about this. I know my grandparents. I knew some of my grandparents. Um, I could tell you maybe something meaningful about them. But my great-grandparents, I know their names. And I can tell you nothing meaningful about them. Now, you may be a genealogy person, and, and you have something. You say, hey, I wrote this in the book for my kids. And then you put it in a box, and the box goes in the attic. And then some well-meaning child throws it away. And that's that, Right? That is what he is saying. He's saying to these young men, you may want to try to etch your name in history, but he's just going to remove the hope that they will ever truly be remembered. And you're like, this is supposed to help us in a search for a meaningful life. Yes. He is demolishing so he can build up. So before you even start to find meaning, you have to accept that there is no gain under the sun. So how do we make some headway in the search for a meaningful life? How do we get some gain? How do we get some profit? As you search for meaning, you, you can do this a couple different ways. All right? You can, you can, you got a few options. Number one, you can do what he's doing right here. You can try to find meaning under the sun, which in other words is just figure it out in its own terms. That's what's happening in verses 1 through 11. Try to understand what life is on its own merit. But he's warning you that if that's what you're doing, it is like trying to grab a handful of clouds. It's brief and unsubstantial. Even if you're intelligent, if you limit your horizons to just what is going on in this earth, you will despair. Now, trying to figure out is, is actually worth it. I have a friend who's very, very secular in his worldview, and his worldview essentially is this. Do no harm. Work hard to sustain your lifestyle, and then everything else is fair game. That's pretty much his, his way. Sometimes out there you'll see a lot of common grace where people are trying to pay it forward. They're trying to leave things better. But the thing is, even if you do that, when you die, 
Will you see it? You will not see it. And when you think about that too hard, you will despair. Now, that is one popular method, just like, you know, empiricism, materialism. Just try to just, just, but here's another, and this is the most popular way of trying to find meaningful meaning in life. You don't. You don't. You distract yourself. You, you, you know, you don't know and you feel pretty good about it. You, you're going to get yourself a hobby. You're going to work. You're going to accumulate. You're going to retire. You're going to hopefully leave something for the kids, maybe leave things a little better than when you left it, and then you're going to die, and that's it. This is escapism. You know, it breaks my heart. I've done a number of funerals where somebody lived this way. They just lived their lives. They didn't think too hard about it. They didn't follow Christ. But invariably, when we get to this point, everybody around them starts talking about a better place and how they're going to be an angel and that they're in a better position. And they have no basis for it because they live their entire life in escapism. But what that tells us is that we cannot bear. We cannot bear to think about a life that has no meaning. So you may be thinking like, okay, so I can try to figure it out, you know, and just, you know, live my life and, you know, hopefully leave it better. Or I can just escape, you know, and try to drown it out and not think about it. Is there a better way? And there is a better way. The other option is to listen to wisdom beyond the sun. Jesus Christ himself said to Nicodemus, a teacher in Israel, that you have to listen to the wisdom beyond. In this passage, one of my favorites Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we've seen, but you don't receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one's ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. The testimony of wider scripture is that there is someone speaking to us beyond the sun. That God is there and he is not silent. And he loved us so much that he communicated to us. He communicates us to the beauty of nature that we have seen. We can see his fingerprints. He communicates us through scripture and his word. You know, we have been trying to contact extraterrestrial life for, I don't know, over 50 years. And... I checked in with my good friend, um, ChatGPT, the other day just to see how that search was going. And it says, as of my last knowledge update in January 2022, listen to it speaking to me, you know. The search for extraterrestrial life was ongoing, but no definitive evidence has been found. And then it goes on to explain uh, what's going on. Radio telescopes and uh, planned missions to the moons of Jupiter and Saturn looking for subsurface ocean. And, and that's all very fascinating. But my point here is that why do we want to find E.T.? It's because we are desperate for some sort of external input that maybe will help us make sense. Maybe they have a way not to mess things up. We believe as Christians that we have a word from the triune God himself, the relational God who spoke to us. Only through listening can we make sense of life. Otherwise, it will be inscrutable. And the preacher here is true in his observations. So a lot of times we're going to see that he is dead on, but then there may be some additional truth that brings more hope. But he is okay sitting with that. 
Jesus had made the same observation as the preacher. For what will it profit a man if he gains his whole world and forfeits his soul? But the teacher's observation is not complete. Is there another piece to this picture? I believe we see the answer to the search for the meaning of life in the last two words of uh, the scripture that John read a little bit earlier in Luke. So in that parable, Jesus told the parable of a rich fool who lived under the sun as a materialist, just socking it away and trying to enjoy life. And this is what Jesus said in the last verse. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich. What are those last two words? Toward God. This moves us beyond the very good and true observation that people gain nothing from their toil and makes it even truer. Apart from God, people gain nothing from their toil. So once you're listening to the preacher and you're listening to Jesus as your teacher, then you are ready to hear a verse like 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. In chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul speaks about what the good news of the gospel is. He speaks about resurrection. He speaks about the future of those who fall asleep, that they will be changed. And then, I want you to do this. Think of someone right now that you miss. Okay? Have it in mind? Who do you miss? Then look at verse 58. This verse is a verse of response for Ecclesiastes. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, not vanity. If you know Christ, God says that all your meaningless toil, your toil that goes around and around, the thing that you do for that child who never learns, you're a caregiver doing humiliating things over and over until the end of a life. You go into a job day in and day out to provide for your family. You go into the halls of your school and you're like, will this never end? If you know Christ, it is not to no end. It anticipates that we are going to be with Christ forever. Show you a picture here. Now, you may know these people, and, and they graciously allowed me to feature this picture because it's one of my favorites. My question, how can everything that is in this picture not be futile? Because if you approach it from under the sun, you will say this, one generation goes and another generation comes. This baby will grow and live her life and die, and that will be that. I hope it was a good one. Or if you try to figure it out only under the sun, you may conclude it would be better for this child not to have been born at all. Or if you take the second stance, maybe you would say, uh, I'm just not going to think about it. I'm just going to enjoy my life, hopefully give her a decent life, and uh, we'll just kind of muddle through this somehow. But if you believe that it is not in vain, that we have a God who is personal, and that he is a God who is love, that this baby and this dad were created in his image. If you believe that, then this scene is a picture of the transcendent love of Christ. The way that you feel about your mom or your dad or your spouse or that neighbor or that roommate, it is from a glorious relational God. And when you believe that, 
nothing is vain. And so every look of love, every sacrifice, every sleepless night, every hour you put in, every diaper you change, everything you study, everything you leave better for the next generation is not in vain. Because with the Lord Jesus Christ, everything matters. It is for his glory and you will be rewarded. And you have something. That's profit and that is gain. So I'm excited to go on this search with you. Uh, We are sometimes going to leave with a little bit of tension, but I hope we always leave with hope. And if you have questions about this and you're like, wow, I'm I'm kind of like stuck in those first two worldviews, we're always here to talk. Uh, We would love to do so. Let's pray. Father, we love your word. Thank you for speaking to us. Thanks for not leaving us floating around with no hope, no word from above. Thank you for your word and the way that it's not just rote commandments, but it's stories and it's poetry and it's wisdom and it makes us work our minds. Lord, you're so good in your revelation. And so, Lord, we ask now that as we start to take on this search for the meaningful life, I ask that you would bless it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.